you ever wondered what the secret is to playing great tennis? Well, today on the Tennis IQ podcast, we have that answer for you from one of the best tennis coaches in New England, Brian Barker. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. Welcome to episode two of the Tennis IQ podcast. And you know, today's episode, like I said, we have Brian Barker, great tennis coach here in New England. Um, but some of you may not be as familiar with who Brian is. Um, so he's probably best known for his work with James Blake and James's brother, Thomas. Um, but Brian was an accomplished player himself. Uh, he was number one in the New Englands in the 14s, 16s, 18s. He was also ranked 20th in the nation when he was in the 18s. He went on to play for the University of South Carolina, where he was a two-time MVP and captain. After he graduated, he played on the Pro Tour and was ranked uh, as high as 646 in the world. But after, you know, after the Pro Tour, he left and you know, soon after got into some coaching. Um, and he's won a lot of awards and accolades as a coach, um, including USTA Coach of the Year in 2005. Um, currently, he's the director of uh, tournament training at the Tennis Club of Trumbull in Trumbull, Connecticut. Um, and Josh, you know, I thought there were a lot of good themes here in this in this interview, and you arranged this interview uh, because you have a personal connection with with uh, with Brian. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I've actually known Brian for right around ten years. Um, my my junior and senior years in high school, I trained at Tennis Club Trumbull, um, and you know, he was the uh, the director there of the tournament training programs, and uh, you know, he had just recently come off the tour from working with James for you know many many years, I believe. Uh, 19 years total throughout James's, you know, junior career up until playing as a professional. So, um, yeah, it was really special to, um, you know, to, to be able to train with him and uh, to, you know, to, to do this interview. I mean, James, I, I come from Fairfield, Connecticut, and James Blake, uh, especially within the tennis community here, is, is really a legend, is really someone that we, you know, we look up to. He, he, went, he grew up in Fairfield. He went to my high school, Fairfield Ward. It was Fairfield High School at the time. Um, and actually, my high school courts are are named after him, the the James Blake tennis courts. Um, so uh, it really was very special and really an honor to uh, to talk to Brian today. I, I thought he had a lot of uh, a lot of great ideas, a lot of a lot of great concepts um, that we'll dive into. Yeah, I think everyone will enjoy that. So uh, with that, here's our interview with Brian Barker. Brian, uh, thanks for thanks for joining us today. Um, I've uh, I've known you for a while, ever since my high school days, uh, you know, training, training uh, in the tournament training programs at Tennis Club of Trumbull. Um, so it's, you know, it's really nice for this to, to come full circle and to, uh, for you to join us today on our podcast on Tennis IQ. So, uh, you know, really, really excited for you to be here today. So thank you. Okay, sure. Yeah, I'm, 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 look, I'm looking forward to it. Should, should be fun. Yeah. So, Brian, I figured what we could start with is, you know, how did you get started in tennis? You know, what was your progression through the sport? Obviously, you know, in your background, great junior player, then went to South Carolina, then became a professional. But how did it all begin? And maybe also talk about some other sports that perhaps you played as a youngster. Yeah, so when I was uh, seven or eight years old, I was big into baseball and basketball. Those those are my two sports. And then when I actually didn't start playing tennis till I was 11, but um, my dad filled in a group. He never played tennis. I started playing tennis. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. I thought it was the greatest sport out there. And immediately, that was just what I wanted to do. I liked the idea of I win and I lose, and it's all up to me. So I just, yeah, just, I just love that part of it. 
That's interesting that it started at 11 because, I mean, you're probably working with a lot of kids who have started much earlier. Yeah, in general, that's very late to start. But I will say once I started, I went all in. I would just immediately within a couple months, maybe, I was playing certainly five, six days a week and couldn't get me off the court, just just hanging out, playing with whoever for as long as I could and started playing tournaments right away and went from getting killed in the first round of the town tournament when I started to, you know, shortly after that, um, you know, be one of the top players in New England and competing at that level. Yeah. Was it the, so you mentioned the individual aspect of tennis that, that drew you in. Was it, were there any other factors um, that, that really caused, you know, caused your love and your passion for the game as you were growing up? Um, well, it's just, it's, it's a fast sport. It's fast moving. Um, there's so much to it with forehands, backhands and drop shots and it's nonstop action. I, I love baseball, but sometimes you're in the field, the ball doesn't come to you. I just, I just wanted more action. I also love the, the one-on-one and half the sport is you playing well and half the sport is making the other guy play bad. And I would just, uh, I think I was always a thinker as a kid. So I just enjoyed that part of it. And yeah, it all just contributed to my, my love of the sport. A lot of the sports science, Brian, and you probably know this, talks about how other sports, when you play them, can often help you in maybe a primary sport. So you mentioned baseball and basketball. Did your, Do you feel like your experience playing those sports helped you develop more quickly, perhaps, as a tennis player? Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, the hand-eye, hitting the baseball over and over and over and I spend hours, you know, batting cages and having people pitch to me. And certainly with basketball, all the footwork and all the footwork drills and the movement and the balance. And so, yeah, absolutely. Those sports played a huge part that and, uh, and helped me to be a better tennis player for sure. If I just started 11 and hadn't played sports, there was, there was no way. Yeah, right. And then, you know, obviously we're, we are here to talk a lot about the mental side of the game. How did that develop for you? Because, you, like you said, you pretty quickly became very good. I think you were number one in New England, the 14s, and won five New England sectionals in a row. Um, so, so what did you see, like, as maybe a mental strength that you had that helped differentiate you from others? Well, I think my, my parents just drilled it into me that the most important thing by far is to be nice and to be a good sport. That was just drilled into my head. It absolutely was not about winning. It was just, if you behaved well and you were a nice kid and you did a good job. So um, I think that took a ton of the pressure off me because it wasn't, I was doing all this practicing to win matches. I was doing all this practicing to see how well I could do and to have fun. Um, Yeah. So I, I, I think that, that, uh, that was a huge, huge advantage to me. And I realized shortly on that everyone I played seemed to be getting much more nervous than I was. Mm-hmm. I think they were worried about what their parents were going to say, what their coach was going to say. And my coaches were, were very easy with me. Um, Ed Pagano and Dave Fowler were my two coaches. They were very laid back, put no pressure on me. My parents put no pressure on me. So, uh, yeah, I started to dive into why I was more relaxed than everybody else. And, uh, yeah, slowly over time, I think I used that. I use that to help me win some matches, I think. Yeah. So one, so as, um, as your career progressed going through college and then playing in the professional tour, did you, were you still able to keep that pressure off of yourself and play more for the love of the game and the passion of the game? Or did you, did you find that at times the, the passion or the, the pressure rather would, would still uh, seem to creep up? 
So in junior tennis, I think all the way through, I was able to pretty much keep it together. But when I went to college, uh, I got a big scholarship to the University of South Carolina, and I knew they were they were a powerful, very good team. And um, when I went to school, that was the first time no one around me changed, but I changed the way I looked at it. It wasn't okay when I went to school for me, say the top six uh, started and played. And I just thought like, I have to play top six. So it became, when I first went to school, it became about winning because I was focusing on, I can't get a big scholarship and not start and let the team down, let the coach down. And I'm going to school in South Carolina. But as would happen uh, with that extra pressure I put on myself, I, I couldn't hit a ball over the net. And I was absolutely terrible. I pretty much lost every match I played, every challenge match, every match. And I just wanted it so bad. I never wanted it like that before. I was still certainly trying to be nice, but there was a part of me that was even more important like, to me was to win. And just like everybody else, once you focus on, on the winning and not the, the process and doing all the right things. So I played terribly for a long period of time, the whole first semester. And then the uh, second semester started. I shouldn't have been in the top six, but the coach put me in the top six. I was trying to relax, but I couldn't. I remember the first match of the year, the whole team won like 6-1, 6-0, 6-0, And I lost my match 7-6 in the third after having like five match points. I told myself, I can't play tennis anymore. I'm done playing. Like, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm terrible. I'm not good enough to be playing on this team. And it's embarrassing. And that's when my dad just drilled it in my head again. He says, Brian, like, if you lose every match you play, just have everyone know you're the nicest guy on the team. Just focus on that. Like, you're fun to practice with. You're the nicest guy. And even though you stink at tennis, you're, you're the greatest guy. And then finally, after those four months, I was able to do that. And I really put all my focus on just being nice and doing my best. And then I literally ended up winning 14 matches in a row and getting MVP. <laughs> And I think that whole experience, I'll just never forget everything I went through and everyone that I work with and how important it is to have your head right. And it just makes, it's not like a level difference or two levels. I mean, I was like three levels, certainly worse, just by getting my head straight and focusing on the right thing. So that really got me into the, into the uh, psychology of it. Yeah, that's an amazing story, Brian. And, and so it must be, you know, how do you communicate to that? that to your students because what you describe is a lot of what junior players go through feeling either that pressure or uh you've heard people even say it's so embarrassing to lose this much uh, you know how, how do you communicate that story and the power of it to to your players well i just i think a part of being a good coach i think is is being able to relate to the players and just knowing what they're going through and i just realize uh, all the way, all the way playing tennis growing up, and it was tough for me mentally. I mean, it wasn't like it was easy. I always knew that it was much easier for me than other players because I had no pressure from my coaches, zero and zero from my parents. But the pressure I put on myself was still—it made it tough, very tough. So I look at a lot of these other kids, and they have the pressure coming from their parents and their coach and themselves. And I just realized, like, they just often just can't do it. They just, they just, they can't play. They literally, you know. As you know, they say everything from like, I, I can't breathe. I can't feel my hands. I can't feel my legs. I, I just can't. And so um, just over time, I just try to talk them back to all the things that I learned that it has to be about just trying to do your best and try to be a good person. And if you can get back to that, it's so much <laughs> harder to do than it is to say. 
and you just work on that, you know, over the course of your lifetime, you just keep getting back to that. Like when the anxiety comes and you feel all worked up and you, you can't control yourself, it's like, well, obviously you're trying too hard. You're, you know, your best is no longer good enough. And so I yeah, just tell them story after story. Literally all the top kids I coach, I never let one day go by where I don't say something about the mental side of the game and just putting the same thing, which is it all goes back to, you have to relax. Tennis, you have to be loose and flowing and glide around the court. And to do that, you can't, you can't feel tons of pressure. So you have to get it back to doing your best, being a good person. And so it's just, you know, it's just a lifelong process. Absolutely. No. And I, uh, again, from being around, uh, tennis club of Trumbull and seeing, seeing the work you do, I can, it's, it's clear that, you know, it's, it's a constant reminder and, as you said, it's a, you know, it's a process that, you know, you're never, you're never quite there. Those feelings of anxiety or of pressure will, will still always, you know, always pop up at times. Um, what, what, one question that I have is, um, as obviously, uh, James, you know, you're, you're well known for uh, your work with James Blake over a long period of time, as well as his brother, Thomas. Um, what, a question that I had is uh, how, how did that relationship start? And what did you what did you notice about the two of them that maybe separated them from some of the other players that you worked with? Uh, yeah, so I started with James. I guess he was 11 years old and Thomas was 14. And like most all good players, they're extremely competitive. And, uh, you know, they had that drive. But they also, like everyone else, you know, dealt with that mental side. And um, Thomas, I think, felt a lot of pressure from playing. And he kind of went to... Uh, you know, no big deal. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. Almost like it's too much to worry about. There's too much pressure. I'm just going to kind of chill and give it what I can, but no big deal, but maybe a little too relaxed. And then James was, he was just a ball of fire. Everything had to be perfect. You know, he had that perfectionism that, that makes people good and makes them driven, but just probably too much of it. So he needed to take a step back um, and just, you know, kind of relax and, uh, yeah, so with the two of them and with any, anyone I've ever coached, and of course, the better you are, the more pressure you feel, and it just never stops. Literally, as you keep getting better and better, you have to spend more and more time on the metal side because when you lose, you lose a lot. There's a lot to lose. And when you win, there's a lot to gain. So, you know, again, it all came back to talking to him about how to just relax and enjoy the enjoy the game more and, you know, not be so hard on themselves so they can, can – enjoy the sport. James particularly was super hard on himself. I'd say he would probably say he had a pretty bad temper when he played when he was young, maybe extremely bad. Um, and all this, he was a great kid, just, just hard on himself because he wanted to win. And I would say every single year from 11 years old to till he was done playing on the tour, he got to be more relaxed and could keep his, his metal side in control more. And when he was 11 years old, he used to get mad, you know, playing in a clinic at the club. That meant nothing. And eventually he worked his way up to, you know, not even getting that upset, you know, on Arthur Ashe Stadium, uh, you know, in front of 20-something thousand people and keeping it together. So, yeah, just, just a process to, to, you know, for him to get himself there. That's interesting, you know, because uh, when we think about mental toughness at the elite level and, you, you know, obviously you've played at the elite level, you've coached James who was at the elite level. A couple of the factors that really come out in, in surveys and research on that are a player's ability to fully focus on what they can control and um, 
and a couple of different flavors of confidence, you know, one being a real true self-belief in your ability to, to win and achieve your goals, and then also a trust in your abilities. Um, you know, could you talk about that maybe from your own perspective, Brian, but as well as, you know, what you saw in James, because, you know, getting to number four in the world, there are probably different stages of how you have to go through different challenges to get all the way to that level. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like you said, you need to have a ton of belief in yourself. And, uh, and part of that belief comes from, from getting better at the sport, you know, just working on your game, literally one day at a time, trying to get your forehand right, your backhand right. And uh, with anyone I've ever coached, I just tried to kind of keep it simple and that one day at a time, do the best you can. And James had an interesting uh, kind of rise because he always had that belief that he could do it, which of course you need, but it was almost like, the belief was ahead of how good he really was. So then frustration comes in and, you know, he gets so frustrated and, uh, but he did a great job as he, as he went along of uh, just working on his game, slowly getting better. And, you know, it was interesting when, when James was in the first, first year, 16, he didn't make nationals because he wasn't in the top five. And then when he was uh, second year, 16, he made nationals. He lost first round. When he was first, when he was first year, 18s, he made nationals, but he lost first round 6-1, 6-0. And then the next year, he was number one in the country. And everyone says, like, well, how does that happen? And it was um, a combination of he got his game together all the way through as he went did every step. So he had forehand, backhand, all the parts of it. Then he also grew, I think it was nine inches in one year, which, of course, made it, that gives yourself a lot more belief when you have that kind of firepower. And then uh, – Equally as big was uh, the metal side. He just really, really went to work and just he just told himself, I'm not losing anymore, or at least not as much, because my metal side isn't under control or because I lose it mentally or because I can't stay focused. So he just got so much better than that. And then coupled with that belief that he always had that he could almost do anything, um, you know, that's why it's most everyone that gets to that elite level, they have that frustration. They need to work on the metal side because that belief they have is just ingrained in them. And they just, they know they can do it. They feel they can do it. Obviously they can't always do it, but they certainly feel like they can. And then the frustration comes in and that's that balance between you can do it, but you don't have to do it today. <laughs> and he just, he just did a great job of working on that and, uh, you know, eventually getting him to where he was. Yeah, that's another great story because you, you don't have to like win today, right? It, and, and in fact, it's probably a good story even for your younger players that who are, you know, in the 12s or the 14s who are looking for all these wins. It's like, well, I think I'd rather have you win at 17, 18, you know, and right. be looking to build your game, your mental game, your physical game. So that that's when you peak. You don't want to be peaking at, at 14. Exactly. And I try to, to – uh... Anyone I've ever coached, I always try to talk to the parents and the kids and just kind of drill that home because, like you said, it's so incredibly important and very, very few parents and kids do it right, which is just always having the eye on, like, 16, 17 years old. So if you're athletic enough and if you're still enjoying the sport, you know, maybe you can help you go to a college you want or get a scholarship or, you know, whatever it might be. And then you have your four years of college to get better. And, you know, then the dream of maybe playing pro someday, which, you know, you keep in the back of your mind, which is always a lot of fun to think about. And, uh, and that, that perspective, 
I find sadly not too many people have, and it takes away the joy when they're 10 and 12 and 14 and, and it takes away from them building their games and, and being, you know, okay with getting worse to get better. So that's all that plays such a huge part in, in how good someone becomes that they can eventually do what everyone's trying to do is be the best they can be. So when, when you when you speak with parents, do you try to convey and talk about your own experiences and how you were able to achieve more because because of the lack of pressure put on yourself from your from your coaches and from your parents to try to help them understand that that, you know, that pressure really can hold them back and make the process more difficult. Exactly. That's uh, one of the, I think it's so important to talk to the parents. Obviously they're with the kids so much and they have much more influence on, on the kid than I do by far. And so if they can understand however much pressure they think the kid's feeling, it's usually 10 times that amount. So whatever they think it is, it's just so much greater than that. And it's like when you get nervous during a match watching your kid, especially at the crunch time, important moments, they say it's, it's tougher to watch. I mean, it's tougher to play. <laughs> it's literally <laughs> on your racket. It's sometimes it's tougher to watch. But for the most part, it's hard. So I try to explain to them just how hard it is and that very few kids, almost none, don't try hard enough. I mean, at 30 years of coaching, I don't know if I ever coached anyone that didn't try hard enough. The only there were plenty that gave up, that quit, that tanked, that in a sense didn't try, but it was always because the expectations were so high and they wanted it so bad and then they thought they weren't going to make it and they couldn't live up to their parents and their coats, so then they shut back and don't try. But it's not just because they don't want to win. And just having – explaining that kind of the parents over and over and having them realize that, that when your kid, you know, gets – close to winning and then can't hit a shot and can't hit the ball over the net. It's not because they don't want to win. It's because they want to win too badly. So really the goal of coaches and parents is anything that comes out of your mouth is to try to take the pressure off, is to try to get them to relax, try to get them to enjoy it more. And that's, that's tough for parents to do, especially when they get caught up in watching what other parents are doing and all. But I, I certainly try to uh, relay that to them because that plays such a big part in how good the the kid's going to be. Yeah, for sure. Um, Perhaps you know we can transition to your coaching career a little bit, Brian. You know, um, and and just like your philosophy of working with players, um, you know, how do you, you know, I guess what is your sort of personal coaching mission and philosophy? How do you think about coaching? Um, well, because I realize that so much is about pressure, um, and the kids don't enjoy it enough, and what a long road it is. I guess I would say my coaching philosophy is number one is to to have tennis be, I think I look at every kid as like I'm coaching them in life. Like my goal is to make them better people, happier people, and just hardly anyone I coach is going to become a pro. So I tell them from 22 to 92, that's why we're playing tennis. That's why we're going through this. And that perspective helps them to relax more because it always comes back to being a good person. You know, the relationships you make that can help you out with jobs and all. So I would say number one, yeah, that's my philosophy is it's more about the person in their life. And then tennis is a part of that. And then so that tennis part, you just want to line up every part of tennis you can to make the person to be the best they can be. And like I tell people, if someone gets a two in the world, but they should have been number one. I really think they should have done better. Cause we already said they, they, they could have done it. You know, they had the talent, but they didn't do it. 
And if someone else is, you know, 200 in their town, I mean, that's great. If that's the best you can be like, that, that's awesome. I'm going to be really happy. So uh, I think, no, so number one, it's about being the best person you can be. And then as far as tennis, it's being the best at tennis that you can be. And just knowing that very, very, very few players end up being the best they can be because all your strokes have to be good. You have to enjoy the game. It has to be something that's fun. You're not doing it just to get better. You're actually having fun at it. You know, you have to know the strategy and you have to have a big mental component and not too many people ever get all that. So uh, I just try to come as close to that as I can. I try to line everything up and then however good they are, you know, I'm going to feel really good about it because they're doing their best. That, that definitely makes sense. Um, can you can you talk about the, I, I guess the, the different perspective or the different um, strategies that you that you go with depending on you know whether you're working let's say with a ATP player like somebody like James or um, you know coaching you know junior players uh, how that process how that process looks different. And it's it's amazing how much it's similar. That 14-year-old that wants to win that local tournament or become New England champion or the pro that's 120 in the world is trying to get to 80 where they can get in all the majors, um, it's so similar. And I find the better they get and the more pressure there is, the more important the mental component is. And it always gets back to the same things. And there's literally hundreds of ways to say it and get to it but you have to get them to be okay with just doing their best, even if it's not good enough. And it really all comes down to that. And very few can do it. But uh, with all the pros that I've been able to work with around hundred or 200, or once they could do that, they end up playing much better because it begins, they, they stop thinking about the winning and losing. And as we know, when we're playing a match. As soon as the winning and losing comes into our head, forget it. Once, once you focus on like four more points and I win, I mean, it's, it's, it's a disaster. And a lot of people play their whole careers, especially pros, and almost kind of choke from the first point of every match to the last point of every match all the way through. And I just try to get them to the point, like, you know, don't you get tired of doing that? Like, every point is life or death and holding on and not just letting it go and being loose and whatever happens, happens, but kind of hoping the other person misses and hoping you make that big shot. And now you got the break and... You're never going to be as good as you can be. At some point, you just have to just relax. And the amazing thing is when you can get them there, they usually play so much better because so much of it is just not being able, able to relax. And then they almost always say to me, but this is like too easy. Like it's not even about winning and losing. I'm just trying to do my best and just play. Whatever happens, happens and make sure I have fun. Make sure I enjoy the practice. Make sure I enjoy the match. But of course, if you have two people – and it's a huge, huge match. It's going to make a difference in their career and life. And one has convinced himself over years and years of exercises and just focusing on it that they really are going to be happy if they just do their best and let it all, leave it all out there, do everything they can. And the other person is like, yeah, but I also have to win. <laughs> the more relaxed person is probably going to win pretty much 100 out of 100 over a two-hour match. You're only looking for a couple extra points, so – um, yeah, it's just, it's really just different ways of getting into the same thing and ultimately just to, yeah, just do their, do your best and just, just let it go. I, I love that comment that you said that some of them make that it's like, it, it's, it's too easy. 
that's <laughs> almost like the light bulb moment, isn't it? I mean, that's that's like true enlightenment that you've kind of helped bring them along on that path to to realizing, yeah, maybe that that sort of being in the zone or flow state is much more available to me if I can really do that, and I've I've found it. Um, but it probably has to go through a, a bit of self-learning to get there, don't you think, Brian? I mean, there's probably a, a level of pain and suffering that one has to go through in order to, to really figure that out for themselves. That's a great point. There's no way that you, there's no way you, you can get there without going through the pain and figuring it out yourself. <clears throat> I think it helps a ton to have someone reminding you of what to keep in mind. And some people never get it because of that, because they... They just don't have anyone reminding them, so they just get caught in that spiral of like, I'm a loser if I lose, I'm a winner if I win, you know, I have to keep going. <clears throat> um, but yeah, when, when uh, what we were saying, um, sort of getting th- learning that on your own and going through, oh, that yeah, thing. yeah, sorry. right. So, so, uh, yeah, so like when I went to school, I knew that in theory, if I relaxed, I could play better, but I needed to go through the pain. And have it just get to my soul so much. And just and I think most every player has to reach that, like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't be so hard on myself and beat myself down and just be so ruthless on myself. Like, I have to enjoy this. And when I ask players, particularly the, the pros, you know, if you stop now, would you say that you reached your potential and you can feel good about it and you have nothing to feel bad about? And almost everyone says, oh, my gosh, no. Like, I'm not even close. Like, I feel terrible. Like, I'm not – it's like, well, why? I choke my brains out every match. It's like, well, why? And then eventually get back to, yeah, because you're not happy with doing your best. You're – if you win, you're a winner. And if you lose, you're a loser. And so if you go through all that pain and then have people help you through, then you can realize, like, yes, I did that for – you know, some people like, I've been doing that for – since I was 10 years old and I'm 18, like, you're right. I don't want to do it anymore. And then it's usually just like, boom, you know, and they can, they can, they can get it and they can sail. But then if they don't have someone remind them, then they reach a higher level and they get sucked into the whole thing again. And you want to hang on to the higher level and it's even harder this time. And then that's why so many people, they say the sophomore slump, people play loose when they're the, you know, their first year playing pro tennis then they get all these things and it's all these rewards. It's so great. The money, they try to hold on and they go way down and then they learn just what we're talking about. You know, and then they usually go back up and, and higher than ever. So yeah, I agree with that fully. It's uh, you gotta go, th- you gotta go through the pain, put the hours in. Yeah. It reminds me of the Japanese proverb uh, that perhaps you've heard, you know, fall seven times, rise eight. And many people, yeah. you know, look at that as sort of about grit and resilience, but it's actually about enlightenment because it's like, all right, I need to fall seven times. I need to fail a certain number of times before, boom, oh, I get it. Exactly. Without going through it, yeah, yeah, you're not going to get it. And the biggest winners, you know, they're, they're not afraid to fail. Just like you said, they're just like failing is part of it. And with those Michael Jordan quotes, I missed up teen shots in the final seconds. And because of that, I'm the greatest basketball player ever, or one of the greatest. And yeah, exactly, because he's not afraid to fail. And that's it always amazing when I look at the – the winning percentage of pros on a pro tour, it's almost always so much lower than you think. And I, it's like one of the things that you, you need, especially to be a pro, is in general, people go through the juniors, they don't lose much. They go in their country, they don't lose much. And you go into pro tennis and you're going to lose all the time. If you have a, 
you know, if you win two matches and lose one in the pros, you're probably solidly top 20 and, and, and really, yeah, probably higher than that. So uh, I think James Blake's maybe at like 56% winning percentage, something like that, all those years and three years more or less being top 10 in the world. And when you look at the percentages, it's always, it's always shocking how, how low it is. So like you said, you have to be able to fail. And that was one of the things that was just amazing about James. He would lose first round next week, first round next week, first round, and boom, semis, win a tournament, you're fine. All the points are at the end, all your points back, and, and you're fine. That's, uh, yeah, that's why that's such a great point is you have to be willing to fail and take it on the chin to get to the next level. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, to, to me, it, it reminds me of uh, Stan Wawrinka, the tattoo that he has that says fail, fail better. Go through, <laughs> go through that experience, you lose, and you, you, know, you, you get better through each experience. What, yeah, exactly. And I think it, you know, it goes back to the point that you're making. How, how do you, through, through these conversations that you have with your players, how do you really get, get that point across to a, you know, to a junior that you know, failure isn't something to be avoided? Failure is, is really part of the learning process and part of the process to becoming that type of player that, you know, to fulfilling your p- potential. Yeah, and that's why it just, it's just one day at a time. You know, they say, like, how do you get to the U.S. Open? It's, just, it's literally one day at a time. You know, you, you fail in practice. You can't hit a forehand or a backhand or you're getting too mad or whatever you're doing wrong. And just, you know, try to put it back. And then the mental side inevitably gets back to the kids trying too hard, being too frustrated, being too hard themselves, not enjoying it enough, not being able to play loose and flowing and rhythmic. And just one day at a time, whatever happened that day, I just try to talk to him about it and just said, that's one more day and one more day and one more day. And um, yeah, like with, with, uh, with all the kids, I just, just hopefully every month and every year, they're just better than they were before that. And like you said, sometimes it goes off like a light bulb and very often it's a period of struggle, 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 struggle. And then one match just like, you know, that's it. And uh, James Blake actually had that match with, um, so interestingly, he's in his first year, the 18s. Like I said, he was no superstar player by any means. And he lost to his, his best buddy there, um, Matt Daly, in a, in a New England tournament. And James was ahead, and then he blew the lead. He was up a set in a break, blew the lead, he lost. He came back to, how was your tournament? He's like, oh, same old thing. I got ahead, and then he broke me back. And I was so mad, I couldn't even play. And I just got so angry, and then I lost. And he said, but I'm not doing that anymore. I was like, well, you know, you've been working on this for, you know, six, seven years now. So you might do it again one or two times, but maybe not as bad. And it's just like, no, like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not, I might lose, but it's not going to be because of that. So I was like, yeah, just keep, you know, great. Keep working on it. And then his next tournament was the national indoors, which most of the top players in the country there. And then he won it. And he got the sportsmanship awards. <laughs> And his mom, I remember telling him, like, James, like, there must be a mistake. Like, and you got the sportsmanship award? Well, first of all, how do you win the tournament when you've never done anything like that or beat any kind of players like that before? And then literally that's when he won every match he played up until the finals of Kalamazoo. He'd won 49 matches in a row. He's in the finals of Kalamazoo. And I think his aha moment was it's one thing having me or people around him helping him, but then when it really clicks for you, it's like, boom. You know, that's, that's, that's when it just makes all the difference in the world. That's exactly, that's exactly what happened to him. 
And then he reached pro tennis. And of course there were ups and downs start again. Now you have a whole different level of pressure and uh, hey, you just start learning. And then you start one day at a time again, you have your certain aha moments then as well. And now, you know, Brian, we're going through, you know, an interesting time in all of our lives with, with COVID-19 and, and people are transitioning back to tennis. How's that working for the, the, the kids that you train? You know, what, what are you noticing with them as they return to tennis? Is, is it a little bit more unsure? I mean, I'm sure some of the kids who are being recruited by colleges are having maybe more anxiety than normal. They can't visit those schools. So how are you helping them? transition through this this interesting period uh well two things that's interesting is um you have those kids that are ready to go to school right now um but first to talk about the kids who are a little bit younger than that and good tournament players and uh interestingly parents can't watch now because they can't come inside and the other pros and i were talking it's like oh my gosh these kids are having so much more fun (laughs) they're so much more relaxed they're playing way better. Like, I didn't know some of these kids could play like this. Like, I always thought if they relaxed, they could be better. But it's always shocking just how much better players play when they're not looking up at their parent every time they're having two or three bad, bad points in a row. So the first part is I just can't believe how relaxed the younger kids are and how much fun they're having and how much better they're playing, even having not played much. It's unbelievable. And then, yeah, the kids that are uh, getting ready to go to school and play – um, yeah, they're, they're just in that tough time of, should I go to, should I go to school? Should I stay home? Are they going to have tennis? Are they not going to have tennis? So yeah, they definitely feel the anxiety in that. And, uh, I just try to talk to them the same way. It's really tough, uncertain times, but whatever you go through in life, it makes you more mentally tough. If you can just, you know, take it on the chin one day at a time, make a good decision, <laughs> try to enjoy every day. You know, you can't change things, you know, for the immediate future. So still try to enjoy this time and try to get better at something, you know, tennis or whatever, and become a better person and, you know, keep working on stuff to give yourself something to feel good about, even though you may not be able to put it on the line immediately this fall because they don't know what's going to happen as far as the tennis. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a good moment to try to just control the controllables and just, you know, like Eric Buterak says in, in his TED talk, you know, just try to make today a great day. Yeah. Exactly. That, that's, I think that's, that's great advice. Eric's a great guy. He had great perspective when he played and I think he got the most out of his talents and, you know, did a lot of great things in tennis and yeah, that's, that's, that's great advice. If you go one, one day at a time and, and do the best you can, it's just amazing where you can end up because uh, it seems so easy in life. Just basically be super nice to everyone, do the best you can at everything you do and try to enjoy it. And of course, if we could all do that, we would it'd be incredible we could accomplish and it sounds so easy but as we know very 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 few people can do that because you know it's hard and human nature points you in the direction of if i win i'm a winner and if i lose i'm a loser and then most people have the core people around them usually parents coaches whoever it's like yeah when you win i treat you a certain way and i'm really happy when you lose i am bummed out and that's what makes it so tough is one of the things i think that makes a champion is eventually you have to get to the, to the point that like you don't care what other people think, you know, it's just about your life and doing your best and whatever anyone else thinks of you, that's fine. But you know, you're trying to be nice. You know, you're doing your best. And this is just your time for everyone to say you're terrible, you know, and, and be able to live with it. And that's, that's, I think the main reason most people can't do it, but uh, 
you know, obviously the greats can, you know, the top of the world tennis players. James, certainly by the end, they say I'm great, fine. They say I stink, fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we'll see what happens. They're going to change their mind anyway. You know, just do the best I can and, you know, see what happens. Yeah. So as, um, you know, considering everything going on with, with COVID and the tour, you know, starting up again, where do you see, where do you see things going? I mean, obviously the U.S. Open and uh, the Western and Southern tournament are right, right around the corner. Um, do you have, do, how do you envision uh, the, the reopening of, of the sport going? Obviously there's a lot of challenges there. Yeah, yeah. good question. Um, obviously I have my fingers crossed it's, it's going to go forward and, Certainly in the perfect world, I'd love for it to go forward. And, you know, I think for the most part, a lot of things would be, be very safe. But the, the people coming from all over the world and flying in, it just seems like that's just a tough thing to overcome right now. So I hope they can do it. But it's, it seems like it's going to be pretty tricky for them to overcome that. But, uh, yeah, hopefully they can because people are, <laughs> are dying to watch some sports on TV and, yeah, and just can get back to, uh, to more normal lives. So we'll see. And I think, you know, a certain level of tour players want to be playing just because, I mean, as you know, the financials of being a pro tennis player are very difficult. It's mm -hmm. probably the worst sport one could choose to try to go pro in, given the, the very small number of players that can actually support themselves out there. Um, and I think that that's part of probably why a lot of players want some of this to open up again is so that they can be back and and, and earning money and, you know, trying to play toward their potential. Definitely. Yeah. Most of the players, they're not getting paid if they're not playing. So, you know, sitting around for a few months practicing, I think they got their rest. I think a lot of players didn't find a little rest because the tour can be grueling. You know, a lot of players have like six weeks off a year, which is, I mean, that's just so tough. So uh, a little break I think was good. And now, yeah, they're dying to get out there and, yeah, make some money, have some fun, see how good they can be and get on with their lives. So I think, I think most of them just can't wait to play. So hopefully they'll be able to. We'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's trying to – I have a couple questions here. We pretty much covered covered most of what I, I have. Brian, anything – any other things you – No, I think, Brian, this was fantastic. Thank you for uh, – for for joining us and giving you know your perspective on your own career and coaching and uh, love your philosophy about helping the players relax, take as much pressure as you can off. You know, a lot of the players, I mean, that's all I hear all the time is this, you know, this self-critical piece where if we could get it off, you know, criticizing ourselves and not get the focus off of ourselves and more onto what we're trying to achieve every day. And having fun and, like you said, being the best person you can be. I think that's just a, a wonderful philosophy. So thanks for, for joining us and sharing that with us. Okay, very good. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I enjoy talking with you guys. So, Josh, I thought that was a great conversation, you know, with, with Brian there. Um, what are some things that you took away from that? I think the biggest takeaway I had was really the, that concept of playing without pressure. Um, so many athletes – Feel, feel so much pressure on themselves, whether it's pressure that they exert on themselves, pressure from their parents or their coach. And it really is a pressure to win. And really what I liked about uh, Brian's main theme is to, you know, really focus on just trying your best and trying to um, do your personal best 
rather than focusing on the winning and losing where, you know, if you win, you're a winner, you lose, you're a loser. So there's always that back and forth every day. But instead, and again, that back and forth also comes with the emotional piece. And it's going to be very challenging, especially for a young athlete to deal with that. So instead, you know, focusing on really doing your best and knowing that that will uh, lead to a lot more progress along the way. Yeah, I thought the the lowering of pressure thing was really important because it's – there are many barriers to tennis performance and, and pressure is certainly one of them. And the more that we as coaches and sports psych professionals and parents can do to remove that, it's almost like it's interference in the signal in a way, right? If we can take away that interference, then we allow the player to play well. I think the other thing that I really like that he included in this was trying to be the best person that you can be when you're out there, you know, and it made me think more about, how aspiring to positive virtues, you know, actually makes us feel a lot better about ourselves. And it gives us something else to focus on aside from that, that winning and losing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think if you can, uh, I think for, you know, for junior tennis players and really tennis players of all ages who compete, it's just so important to, um, to have things within your control, like your effort, like your, you know, your attitude and your character, that you're focusing on and those are those are what your goals are your goals aren't i'm going to achieve this type of ranking or i'm going to win this match um, by this score but instead you're focused on hey i'm gonna try to be the best person i can be and i'm gonna you know give it everything i can each and every day so i think focusing on those things sets a tennis player up for a lot more success and to be to be a much better person yeah and it requires some practice right it's, it's a lot easier to say this and then do it but if you can go out there and practice with that attitude I think you'll start to realize some real success on the tennis court. All right. Well, thank you, Josh. And thanks everyone for watching. That's our show. Uh, once again, we want to you know, give great thanks to Brian Barker for appearing on our show. Uh, for more on today's episode, check out the show notes in the show description. Um, please subscribe to the podcast, our Tennis IQ podcast on your platform of choice. Or you can also subscribe on YouTube where we are uh, putting up these, these uh, podcast episodes. If you have feedback for us or have a question about the mental game, email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, you can use the hashtag tennisiq and we'll respond there. Thanks so much and see you next time.